Hello, folks. This is Michael Gormley, and I am coming to you sandwiched between my wife's fancy pillows and my kids' giant squishies that we got from Costco. I mean, these things weigh like 15 pounds of plush. And I'm doing this because my home office in my new house is, uh, well, let me just say it's very echoey because there's nothing in here. So now I'm trying to reduce the echo like a crazy person by holding my kids' squishies over my laptop and talking into my super laptop microphone because I left my... You know what? This is just this is just me rambling. However, today's show I'm very excited about because my buddy John DeRosa over at the Classical Theism Podcast, he gave me permission to reproduce or replay for you all a show that originally aired, episode 160 on his show, The Classical Theism Podcast. Um, that with his interview with me about atonement theology, he heard on Every Knee Shall Bow that I liked atonement theology and I was getting into it. And so he decided to have me on the show. And I was so freaked out because the level of scholars and academics and just amazing content that he has on the show, I was super intimidated. So I bought a bunch of books. And some of you who listen to Catching Foxes regularly know that those books uh, got mentioned periodically on the show. Well, the whole point of that was because I was terrified of looking like an ass clown on the Classical Theism podcast that I read and researched and just dove into everything, including Henry, oh, what's his name? He's got a goofy name. Henry uh, Nutcombe Oxenham's wonderful book, The Catholic Doctrine of the Atonement. It's an awesome book. Um, anywho, I'm saying all this because he's letting me re-air that show of course, I have to splice in my own ads, but uh, he was very kind in saying just edit out uh, stuff that kind of is for my show and let her rip. So John, here's the thing about John. John's an amazing human being. He's a high school math teacher at a public school and, you know, on the side, defends 2,000 years of Christian intellectual tradition, metaphysics, and the God of classical theism. He has uh, His show kind of breaks down three different levels of defending the existence of God, defending Christianity, and defending Catholicism. He had me on the show originally just to be like the uh, nerdy layperson evangelist who, who longs to be a scholar but works with people who it wouldn't really be effective talking about divine simplicity without reference to, well, a whole lot of analogies that are that are more street level than academia. I have enjoyed every single time I've been on the show. We have one scheduled here in June that we're going to do. We'll probably release that as a dual cut because I'll be starting my vacation around that time. But man, I love that guy. I love his show. And let me tell you this. There is not a single person in any show on earth that does more research and preparation for their shows than John. I don't know how he does it, but John sends me every time a detailed list with scripture verses, questions in order, all of this stuff. And he just lets me riff, which you will see here. Um, it, it is quite incredible. It is quite incredible. And uh, he enables me to sound uh, like I know what the heck I'm talking about. So, John, you're an amazing man. And here is your show. Coupled with my ads. Catching Foxes fans, I hope you like it. I hope you love John's show as this squishy tries to run away from me. Um, check him out over at Classical Theism Podcast, and you can find, I think I have four other shows on there, but um, you can find a lot of great content that he has. So, all right. Enjoy, nerds. Do, 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 do. Welcome. 
Welcome back to the Classical Theism Podcast, where we glorify the God of classical theism and defend Catholic Christian ideas in conversation. Here at the Classical Theism Podcast, we're setting out to defend three core pillars of the Catholic Christian worldview. One, that the God of classical theism exists. Two, that Jesus is our Lord and Messiah. And three, that he founded the Catholic Church. And one of the great guests that we've had on many times now to help us defend these aspects of the Christian worldview and make them intelligible is Michael Gormley, also known as Gomer. And honestly, he's been a great guest from the beginning. We had him on on an episode first about evangelizing atheists, where we discussed how in confirmation classes and in his CCD classes and beyond, you know, a lot of young kids are are atheists or agnostics, and how do we go about evangelizing them? We also did Why Take Jesus Seriously, one of my favorite episodes to recommend to people, uh, just to get a, a nice taste for the podcast. Anyway, he's just always doing a ton of great stuff. So really every few months, every three or four months, I like to reach out to have him on the show. And recently I had heard, because I listen to his podcast, Every Knee Shall Bow. He does a few podcasts, Catching Foxes, I do here and there. He's been researching the atonement, doctrine of the atonement from a Catholic perspective. What do Catholics believe about the atonement? How is it how has it you know been developed? What are different ideas that, that can be held in the church? How is it different from um, a Calvinistic or Reformed conception of the atonement, uh, or at least some conceptions of the atonement in that regard. So we're going to draw some of those distinctions in the beginning. Then I'm going to hit him with a bunch of scripture passages and just let him talk like, here's what this verse says. What do you make of this from a Catholic perspective? And I got to tell you, I could really ask Gomer anything, and he just kind of oozes salvation history. Like, I just like ask about like some verse in the New Testament. I'm like, oh, he's probably going to give like, you know, well, here's what this verse means. Like, no, all of a sudden we're back into the times where the northern kingdom was being carried off into Babylon. And it's just like he just sucks you into the biblical narrative in an incredible way. So I love that about him. And without further ado, hope you enjoy this episode on Catholic Views of the Atonement. I'm joined again today by Michael Gormley, also known as Gomer, from the Catching Foxes podcast. He is a full-time evangelist who's been working for the church since 2005, making lifelong disciples. And he works with individuals, staff, faculties, parishes, and dioceses on a wide variety uh, in a wide variety of ways in order to bring about the new evangelization of God's people. And he's been on the show many times before. He's also the co-host of an outstanding evangelization podcast um, with Dave Van Vickle, and that podcast is called Every Knee Shall Bow. Michael Gormley, welcome back to the Classical Theism Podcast. It is good to be here. It is good to be here. And I got to tell you, uh, I'm all caught up. I've listened to every episode, okay? I'm all caught up, and I hate the fact that I'm on this show because you're like, we have Dr. So-and-so. Let's bring in two doctors over here. Now there's Gormley. We found him sleeping on the side of a road in an alley somewhere. And I'm like, hi, I like Marvel movies. <laughs> like, <laughs> I feel woefully, woefully outmatched. Well, I did, I'll uh, tell you I, what, though. You, 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 yeah. bring, you bring the street smarts and the apologetics inaction experience to the show. I will tell you, I've had friends who text me. They, they really enjoy your episodes when you're on, you know, you're telling some raw stories and how we can bring this academic stuff to the streets. Yeah, okay, maybe you don't have seven PhDs, but sometimes we need people like you who can kind of like translate the stuff 
from the people with seven PhDs and get it into the pew. So that's why you're on here. But just a quick update. What's been going on? You're always doing interesting things. What have you been working on recently as far as, you know, teaching or podcasting, other cool stuff? Yeah. So uh, I, so I'm in Texas, so we've been back in person and basically, you know, for a year now. So we've been focusing at the parish of uh, getting all of our sacramental needs met. So all the sac prep stuff were on campus. Then uh, I kind of became despondent of video curriculums for other groups. And so I just told the freshmen uh, in our youth group, I just said, you know what, show up once a week. Let me talk to you. And I did a walk through salvation history. Scott Hahn, Father Keeps His Promises style approach through salvation history. And that's where I realized, you know, kind of continuing me and your very first conversation that we had, these kids know nothing about scripture, right? And it shocked me that they didn't know who Noah was. They didn't know who Cain and Abel were. And uh, I'm like, you know less than secular people who are atheists, right? Like, it was it's kind of shocking. And so um, I began this quest of teaching them every week. And so that that took us through the fall semester. So now I've hired two new youth ministers. I'm over all of faith formation instead of adult faith formation and youth ministry. So we got two new people, whereas previously we lost four, so we're still behind the curve. But uh, I found that now I'm running the freshman group all over again. So we're going to have uh, 10 classes on the preambula fidei, right? So we're walking through the preambles for the fall semester and in the spring semester we're doing salvation history because my thoughts are most of these kids like we talked about in that first episode uh, with your confirmation kids most of my kids are atheists if not uh hardcore atheists they are desperately wanting to be atheists um and so just trying to ground that faith so that's been my my heart and soul for the past few months yeah. No, it's it's really important stuff that you're doing. Just to kind of relay that again. So I teach at a public school, but I had um there was a student who was studying poetry and they were like reading this poem and trying to like analyze it like they have to do in literature. And I'm a math teacher, so you know, I don't typically deal with that. But sometimes if I'm on duty in certain places of the school and people are, you know, just working, they'll ask you a question. He was like, you know, it says there's an allusion to um, you know, Genesis 2-2. And it, there was like Genesis 22, <laughs> apparently this analysis. And he's like, Mr. Rosa, what is that? And I was like, oh, that's the first book of the Bible. But it goes to show you that the literacy rate on even understanding like what the Bible is, yeah. the books of the Bible, yeah. we like, I felt, I thought that that was just common knowledge, but among teens and younger these days, it's really not. You kind of yeah, have to build it, it from the ground up. If, if it's not in a pop song or on a YouTube video, it, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't, does not compute. It's kind of sad. So our main topic for today, this might yeah. be, you know, the toughest one we've had you on for, because we're going to have you explain what do Catholics believe about the atonement? Relationships take work. A lot of us will drop anything to go and help someone we care about. We'll go out of our way to treat other people well, but how often do we give ourselves the same treatment? And I have now three people who are very close to me who use betterhelp.com slash foxes to get that sweet, sweet discount, who use BetterHelp on an ongoing basis, and it really, really works. We need to make sure that we, too, are mentally, physically, and emotionally healthy. This month, BetterHelp Online Therapy wants to remind you to take care of your most important relationship the one you have with yourself and Yahweh. The good thing is they have Christian counselors. Whether it's hitting the gym, making time for your haircut, or even trying therapy, you are your greatest asset. So invest the time and effort into yourself like you do for other people. 
BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to, which I really don't want to. <laughs> it's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Give it a try and see why over 2 million people have used BetterHelp online therapy. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and Catching Fox's listeners get 10% off their first month, which is huge, at BetterHelp.com slash Foxes. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash Foxes. Thanks to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode and thousands of episodes of Catching Foxes. We'll start with this, just some terms. What is atonement? even mean and to put it in like a teenager speak why does it even matter that some guy died 2000 years ago yeah so the word atonement is fascinating because it's the only english word that's a theological term and i didn't realize that until i began studying this about two or three months ago that there are no english terms in as a theological like specific term and or no english yeah no english that's theological terms and so you began to unravel it and the, the english word just means what it says to become at one to make things that were two now one and it's fascinating because um when you begin to apply this to our our Catholic Christian faith, obviously the atonement is what Christ did. There were two, and he made them one in his body of flesh, which was offered on the cross. So the idea of atonement is what Christ did to reconcile us to God and to one another, right? So that's kind of the, the breakdown phrase. So why is it important that some guy who died 2,000 years ago, how does his death meaningful for me? Well, you know, that is the $30,000 question. That is the idea at the heart of what you see flow out from atonement theologies, because there is no one atonement theology. The Catholic Church has never definitively said this and this alone is the way we express the atonement. Um, it has favored certain certain ones down through the ages. Certain ones have become popular and then fallen out of popularity. And we're talking spans of centuries. But the idea is... What with my relationship with God, number one, what's the ultimate ground of meaning, good, truth, beauty, goodness, you know, the whole deal. How does my relationship with God overcome my all too human experience of my failures, right? Like if I betray a friend, how do I fix that failure, that betrayal? Not I did something neglectful, but like I deliberately betrayed them and now I realize the gravity of my fault and I want to repair that relationship, and when you begin to look at this and then you see that the God of the universe wants a relationship with you as an individual, you become aware of your sinfulness. C.S. Lewis says the first thing everyone is aware of is this notion of right and wrong, of fairness. Like that's why humans quarrel. Animals smash heads and pull out tooth and claw. But we argue and we argue over like why I'm right. And we're appealing the whole time to a third standard that's beyond my preference and your preference, right? But then he said the second religious awareness is that I don't always keep this law, right? <laughs> like I might be mad at you for stealing my seat on the bus, which is one of the examples that he uses. But when I stole someone else's seat on the bus, well, I have my reasons, right? And so you you become aware of like the just the self-justification, the rationalizing. And then it's like, I know dodging my conscience isn't good enough. So how do I fix the wrong that I've done in the past? And how do I get rid of the guilt that I bear with me in the present? Hmm. The problem is the proclamation of the good news with the death of Jesus has to convict people, and I think very seriously, of 
the nature of sin. So if I don't care about this particular person, I don't regard them as a friend, I might betray them all day long. We see this on you know, 24-7 news channels, how they just stab each other in the back because they're the other guy, the other party, right? But the moment I want to be in communion with you, that's where everything changes. And I have to figure out how do I make this right? How do I become at one? And that's the process of the theology of atonement, right? Oh, man. that I did not know that, that it's the only, like, or maybe one of the few English words that had its origin as a theological word. That's like no, it's, really it's cool. the other way around. It's one of the only theological words because everything else is Greek and Latin and Hebrew. So it's the only theological term I that see. actually has its origin in the English. Oh, it's and, origins in the. Oh, I'm yeah. sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, I got it. No, that's word. incredible. That yeah, funny? that is that is really incredible. Um, I did not know that. So that is yeah. that is great to know. And you you kind of set the stage there for what it means like at one bringing us together, resolving that relationship that's broken through sin. And I like that Lewis's two things that we're aware of our religious awareness. One is we know right from wrong. And two, we don't always follow it. We don't always keep that law. And so this needs to be kind of patched up and and forgiven. And we're going to get into the nitty gritty of this. But one question that sometimes people ask is, okay, so God is our creator. He made us. He knows we messed up. Couldn't he have just forgiven us outright? You know, couldn't he have just like snapped snapped his fingers and said, we're forgiven? And the fact that he doesn't do that doesn't that make him less loving if he could have just snapped his fingers and said, we're forgiven, and he doesn't do that? Isn't he less loving? Why did he have to go through this kind of you know gruesome way of sending Christ to the cross? Why don't you talk a little bit about that issue? Well, this is the funny thing. So as I uh, – I'm going to recommend some books as we kind of go along. But that question, why did he have to die? Why this way? Why did forgiveness come about this way? is one of the major questions that everyone has to ask, answer in their own way. And this is why there are many theories of atonement. And for the Catholic, there are some theories of atonement that the church explicitly rejects. Uh, The Christadelphian view, the Calvinist view, um, where Christ is reprobated, that is, Christ is condemned on the cross as if he is guilty of the sin. We have to completely walk away from that as Catholics. Paragraph 603 in the Catechism, uh, and quoting the Council of Trent, the sixth session, where it goes through um, justification. Those are condemned. Other than that, right, other than that, we have a lot of um, freedom in order to understand the Church Fathers and all this stuff. But they all ask what I've been able, these are the four questions. So you say, why death? I think there are four big questions that everyone from the church fathers all the way up to modern theologians ask. So number one is, could there be pardon, forgiveness, without payment? Meaning, can there be mercy without justice? And a lot of church fathers would say yes. A lot of church fathers would say they're the same. A lot of church fathers would say no. Anselm was really kind of the watershed moment. Where And he gave rise to kind of the scholastic turn where he was like, no, you cannot have mercy without first satisfying justice or simultaneously satisfying satisfying justice because it's an affront to who God is. And so it's a cosmic thing. And so this becomes one of the central questions. The next one would be uh, the, uh, the nature of atonement as an absolute necessity. Did Jesus have to die? And then a lot of church fathers would say, well, did he even have to be incarnate? So then they began to ask questions like, well, if we never fell, and this was a big question in the the medieval period between Bonaventure um, and Duns Scotus versus Aquinas and others, 
that if we never fell, had fallen, would Jesus have come? So they begin to ask all these questions. Are there other means of redemption? One drop of blood versus all of his blood? Like, And then is God obliged to accept it? I think that is fascinating that the, these questions kind of crop up in almost every theology, whether they're Orthodox, Catholic, or Protestant, the fathers, the schoolmen, the reformers. You begin to have these questions, and it's amazing how different people answer. Um, and this is what I want to say. This is what I've discovered. and and. You know, stop me if I'm going off the rails here. No, let me just but, say this is an excellent yeah. setup with those four questions because that I mean, those really are the big topics. Is you know, does his mercy contradict his justice justice? Is it over justice? Um, was the atonement absolutely necessary? Could there have been other means? And is God obliged to accept it? I mean, those are huge and those come up yeah. again and again. So this is why I had you on here because I had heard on every knee shall bow that you were researching this. <laughs> and so I want to hear what Gomer uncovered. Yeah. So as I'm researching this, uh, the the one main book, I immediately went out and bought this book by a guy named Henry Nutcombe Oxingham, which is God bless him. Uh, he is uh, writing in 19 or 1865. He was an Oxford dude. He was an Anglican convert to Catholicism. And when Pope Leo said that uh, Anglican orders are not valid in the eyes of the Catholic Church, he kind of protested by not becoming a Catholic priest. But he was right up to that line um, And he wrote a book called The Catholic Doctrine of Atonement which is a, an historical study of different types of atonement theology. And I literally read that this week in preparation for this. I finished it about 20 minutes ago. So uh, I've been going through this, and I find it so fascinating. Another book is by Roke, uh, Rock or Roke Koretsky, R-O-C-H, Koretsky. He's a Cistercian, God rest his soul, um, Cistercian priest at the University of Dallas. He wrote a book, Jesus Christ, The Fundamentals of Christology. And I think everyone should own this book. I think everyone should own this book. It is brilliant. It is an excellent survey. It goes through scripture. It's a Christology textbook. And that's what I had it for in, in college at Franciscan. But he does an excellent job going through the fathers and kind of bringing us through these different questions. Um, but some of the fathers would say, you know, very, very, um, very, very clearly that you do, you do not need, God did not need to become incarnate or to die in order to give us forgiveness. That God could, out of his divine love, have forgiven us. And then so they began to say, you find this line of thought, then why this? Why this in particular? Yes. And the fascinating thing is, and this is what um, you know, I was talking about every Nietzsche bow and on Catching Foxes, is when I began to study the Eastern Orthodox and their use of the fathers, they emphasize the incarnation of Jesus Christ more than in the West where we tend to emphasize the, the passion of Christ. The emphasis in the West on the passion of Christ gets further amplified in the Protestant Reformation where almost, and, and this is to the great lament of many modern Protestant scholars, where the Gospels are nothing more than um, long introductions to a passion narrative. Right, the whole gospels get kind of reduced to that, to the point where the uh, the gospels become just a bit of biography. But here's the real deal, and um, it, it's rather unfortunate because when you, as a Catholic, go onto the Catechism of the Catholic Church, and you go into um, the the part of the Catechism that deals with the death of Christ, um, you know, around paragraph uh, five ninety nine and following, the titles were like the subheadings. This caught my eye. It said. Uh, for 606, it says, Christ's whole life is an offering to the Father. His whole life, not just his passion. His passion is the culmination and a unique thing, 
but his whole life is salvific from basically the annunciation to the ascension and to ignore one thing causes distortions in the final thing or the culminating thing and that's actually and it's it's funny that's in the catechism it's not only there so lately i've been studying the liturgy and all this stuff and all the kind of the things going on with the liturgy in the in the global catholic church um and I've been studying this and getting more into it. I am a liturgical Nazi when I was in high school. And once I found out a little bit about church teaching about the liturgy and I would see how it wasn't being followed anywhere, I was like, well, you, sir. So I deliberately did not study liturgy for years because I didn't want to go down that rabbit hole. I didn't want to become that guy. I also wanted to be able to go to mass and not be like, what, what, what's going on? Why are they doing that? So, but now I've started studying liturgy in a very uh, deeper way because I'm seeing the Protestant hunger coming to my church, wanting to become Catholic, is because of liturgy. It's you know we think it's like oh we got to modernize our liturgy to accommodate the Protestants, but they're coming in droves from non-denoms, being like it's just a show, it's just a concert, it's a wonderful biblical talk, yes, but everything else is just served to prop up an emotional response or something like that. So they come to liturgy and all of a sudden it's a very non-emotional thing for many people. And so they want to understand it better. In the sacramental parts of the catechism, it is all about how the whole life of Christ is salvific. And I began seeing this over and over and over again in church teaching. And I realized that this is not an orthodox teaching. This is a father's teaching of which the Catholics and the Orthodox obviously trace, you know, our theology back to. And so understanding the role of the incarnation is absolutely essential to understanding the reality of the atonement. Because if the atonement is the final act, or, you know, you could say in what Jesus did, right, and what he accomplished uh, in himself, the, the, the nativity, right, the, the conception and birth of Christ is the opening act. It sets the stage for absolute fulfillment. And what did Christ do? And this was the most, like, I love this because to me, it harmonizes all the impulse of the fathers. They fought over the natures of Christ, the personhood of Jesus, the Trinitarian life, so that we can understand how men are saved, right? How were we saved? God did not redeem that which he did not assume. So what did he assume? Did he have a human body and with a divine spirit? No, he also had to have a human spiritual soul. He also had to have intellect and will and imagination and emotions. There's, I discovered this beautiful sermon from um, St. Ambrose on the emotions of Christ, especially his sadness. And it's one of these great homilies that he gave. And uh, you just begin to see the humanity of Christ unfold within the narrative, right? And the catechism talks about that Jesus loved us with a human heart, which is why the the um, devotion to the sacred heart of Jesus began in the first place. It's to honor the human heart, that human center of his personhood, right, from which his divine person operated. And so it was the God's desire to save man that the incarnate, all this stuff with the Trinity and the incarnation, all that had to be hammered out. But then they said, but once you begin to look at this, you say, saved for what? Saved from what? Hell, corruption, separation from God. But for what? Incorruptibility, union with God, absolute communion, theosis, divine filiation, whatever language you want to use, term you want to use, to become one with God for all eternity, body and soul. God took a human, fallen human nature without sin right? Took a fallen human nature, all that makes us human. He united it to his one divine person and saved us through his death and his resurrection, not just his death mm. and his resurrection. 
I've talked a lot. What do you think? No, I think that's a, a lot of good stuff. I like that, not just what he saved us from, but what he saved us for, because I think that's going to be an important distinction that we bring out in a moment. And just to go back to those questions that you asked, you know, I think we would say as Catholics, you know, is this um, mercy that contradicts justice? I think we would say, no, the mercy isn't contradicting justice, but it's going to be compatible with that. I'll let you explain that. Was it absolutely necessary? I would say no, following Aquinas. It wasn't strictly, absolutely necessary, but, and this is probably a term that's come up, it's a very fitting way for Christ to do it, so we'll get into that. Could he have done it by other means? Yes, as we said, not absolutely necessary. Was God obliged to accept it? Now, see, to me, that's an interesting question that you brought up, because it's kind of, I don't even know how to think about that, because if God is the one the classical theist ultimate reality, God is orchestrating this beautiful plan of redemption. Like it would almost seem to be irrational to orchestrate this beautiful plan and then not accept it. It would seem like his acceptance of the plan would be part of the providence such that if it weren't, it would kind of be like him doing X, but also not doing X. And I would say God is just all wise and that that wouldn't come about. Um, so their fear, uh, yeah, the fear with bringing up that question is, um, so the ancient Greeks, uh, Sophocles has this phrase that I've always loved and hated at the same time. And it's what is great. It's, I'm going to paraphrase it, but it was what is greater than the divine nature? Necessity. Right. So you have to understand that within the Greek dramatists, um, you know, the gods were not perfectly infinite right they were lesser right. beings than what we would say god you know i just believe in one less god than you right uh right so they have these these lesser beings but for them there was also this uh, uh, this broader understanding of divinity or the divine nature or divine essence or whatever but then over that all it was necessity meaning they didn't believe that the gods were independent actors that you know were prime movers for sophocles and you got to remember he came before aristotle and whatnot but that there was this emanation from the divine of the demiurge and all the other gods and all these other things. And so the church fathers want to say, in keeping with, you know, you could say with a, a conception of God through divine simplicity, like, if God is, he has to be absolutely free, right? His existence, his, his one great act of existence that is perfect, infinite, and eternal cannot be conditioned by subordinate realities, Right. So they really, really, really want to avoid the word necessity, except for Anselm, who says absolutely it is absolutely necessary for the incarnation. It's absolutely necessary for the death and the exact way it happened. Right. But um, Bonaventure was the one that began to pull back and say, well, how how is it necessarily accepted? Scotus and the kind of the Bonaventure Scotus tradition would go on and talk about this. But was God obliged to accept it? Well, they, they made a distinction between uh the the notion of Adam's failure was within Adam's nature. He was the head of humanity by nature, but Christ became the head of humanity by a pact, right? That is that, uh, and they reference Hebrews ten. Suarez, this is Suarez's view um, in the Thomist tradition that they drew from Hebrews sort of like, okay, the blood of bulls and goats ain't gonna do it. So a body you prepared for me, so I'm going to go. So, yes, you have to accept it because you're the one that set it up. So we made a pact here, father and son, so now I'm going to go. So it is interesting. Like, that comes much later in the tradition of, like, well, does is a father required? And that's scary for people studying this. And they go from, you know, your metaphysics class 
into right your biblical studies class and you're like, wait a second, where does the necessity come in when we say, oh, happy fault of Adam or yeah, oh, happy fault, which merited for us so great a savior. Was that fault necessary to merit the savior to come? Would he have come as not as a redeemer, but as one who elevates and shines the divine light within us in a different way? So these are the importance of asking these questions and dancing down the rabbit holes, of which there are many. <laughs> yes, actually, no. Now that you said that, I'm going to link. There was um, there's another podcast. It's called the Sacred Doctrina Podcast, and they went into Terrible really podcast. a lot of the weeds. Terrible of podcast. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> they went into the weeds of that question on Aquinas and Scotus and where to locate the necessity and would he have come if Adam had not sinned and all that. And so I will link to that question because that is some important stuff to consider. Um, I want to kind of move us along, though, to this big question of the nature of the atonement. Hey, everyone, Gomer here, and I want to take a moment to talk to you about a new sponsor to the show, Petrus Development Conference. This conference being held at the Naples Grand Resort in Naples, Florida, will have over 150 Catholic fundraising professionals from ministries small and large. Their primary audience is campus ministries, Catholic high schools, Catholic grade schools, Catholic dioceses, and yes, Catholic apostolates. They want you to invest in yourself and your career as well as your ministry's future. So come and build community with other Catholic fundraisers in a beautiful beach resort location. If you register in March, check this out. You'll be eligible to win a free three-hour consulting package with a Petrus coach. If you register in April, the first 10 people will receive a $40 airport shuttle voucher. Oh, yeah. Fundraising is hard, so let the fine folks at the Petrus Development Conference give you the tools and the community to make it less hard and actually enjoyable and fulfilling. Take a walk on the sunny side of fundraising at the beach in Naples. And listen, I've done tons of these Catholic conferences, and I'm telling you, the ones at a resort on a beach is where you want to be. The Petrus Development Conference 2022 takes place on June 13th to the 15th. And if you sign up today and use the coupon code FOXES, you'll get 50 bucks off your registration. How awesome is that? So click the link in the show notes or head on over to PetrusDevelopment.com slash PDC22. Special thanks to Petrus Development for sponsoring this episode of Catching Foxes. Like, okay, let's take the kerygma. God loves you, has a plan for your life. Sin has messed up that plan. We've sinned, we've transgressed, we've ten, turned against God, but God has a plan to make things right. How does that work? Well, some people are going to say, well, Christ came and literally took on your debts, all the sins that you committed and ever will commit. He put that on himself, and he received the punishment for those fully in his body on the tree. And then that's why you don't need to be punished for those, and God can forgive you because Christ took it all already, and that's the good news. So the the big term that comes up here is penal substitution or penal substitutionary atonement. And what I was going to ask you is, is penal substitution true? Can we distinguish, let's say, a Reformed Calvinist penal substitution from Catholic substitutionary views? And what kind of distinctions can we make there? Yeah, so the penal substitutionary atonement view was condemned in uh, at the Council of Trent as being unworthy of the gospel of Christ, right? This is not wh- how we should think of 
um, the death of Christ saving us, right? So what penal substitutionary atonement in a nutshell says is mankind in the fall became totally depraved and our total depravity is tied to a very um, specific understanding of um, Adam. So it all goes back to Adam. What did Adam have? According to St. Augustine, Adam had a pure nature and then super added was this supernatural gift of divine life, of grace. For Luther, the idea was that this supernatural gift of divine grace was a part of his human nature. So when he fell, he didn't just have the wound of sin, like we would teach, you know, concupiscence, the fall, you're alienated from a life of grace. He would say that you are incapable of anything good and any merit. You are incapable of that. And so for him, all of salvation has to occur outside of human nature. It has to be extrinsic, forensic. It has to be alien to who I am because what I am is lost and hopeless, incapable of saving myself. His last book um, on bondage of the will, he said was his favorite book. So he, and this is where he's the most adamant about the lost nature of uh, the lost character of human nature. So within that purview, you have two things. One, mankind conceived of as still good, still in the image of God, but lost the likeness. And the other, that even the image of God has been lost. And so what Christ did for penal substitutionary atonement, he became one of us so that he could die. And in dying, right, they use um, 2 Corinthians where he says, he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And the view is that God the Father, through a legal fiction, imputed all of our sin, individually, original sin, all of it, onto Jesus Christ, as if he himself had committed those sins, and then condemned sin in the flesh, condemned Jesus. In the words of the famous R.C. Sproul, famous um, Presbyterian preacher, whom I love. I love R.C. Sproul. I watch tons of his videos. I love that guy. And John John Piper, too. They're both very good. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, And even to a lesser extent, John MacArthur, who always looks angry. He's always got this drawn down mouth. He's so angry. But uh, listening to them, uh, listening to him, he said at one conference that God the Father looked at his son filled with sin on that cross, you know, identified with sin and said, God damn you. Right. And he said, that's what it means to be accursed. So then we come up to the handful of verses in the New Testament, which says, cursed be anyone who hangs from a tree. He was, he took the curse from us. So the distinction for Catholics when it comes to penal substitutionary atonement is I should die. This is the the Protestant version or the reformed version. I should die because of my sin. I deserve nothing but death and hell and damnation. Jesus interposed himself between the wrath of the father and, and me, which was what my sins deserve. And he took all my sins legally upon himself and God condemned Jesus, poured his full wrath on Jesus so that in my place, I don't receive that wrath. Instead, what I receive, it's what's imputed to Christ, namely his perfect righteousness. That gets imputed to me. Now, the Catholics we use, and the handy, you know, turns of phrase, and people who are familiar with apologetics on sola fide and all this stuff, we hear this stuff all the time, but we believe that it's not imputed, but it's imparted. He doesn't just declare us justified he justifies us that is he pours his holy spirit in our hearts the love of god into our hearts and he actually makes us a new creation and what is a new creation but anyone who is in christ jesus namely the saved the elect the church however you want to put it 
And so the understanding of our atonement of becoming one is I'm becoming one with Jesus Christ. And that includes his merits passing into me, changing me, making me something new, not just declaring me something new because Jesus is the word. And when the word speaks, things happen. It's not just a declare, right? So in Germany, they used to have these big, you know, farmers would take, you know, their ox dung and horse dung, and they would put them in these mounds along the roads. And there's a very common thing in German towns and pretty much everywhere in the world. You would just see snow would cover it. And these dung heaps would now be these beautiful little mounds covered in snow. And he says, that's salvation. Whereas for Catholics, it would be that snow seeps into the very core and cleanses and purifies from within, not the other way around. It's not. It's funny that so many people in that world condemned Catholicism because of its externals of the sacraments. But at the very core of everything that we believe, it's an internal transformation, right, that goes from the inside out. And it's funny that they, you know, they deny it in their subjective turn of the faith, but then it becomes an alien, forensic, and external justification. So as Catholics, we believe it's imparted. The life of Christ is lived within us by the power of the Holy Spirit. That changes things. Saved for what? Right? Why are my sins forgiven? So that my sins can be forgiven? That's only half the truth. I'm saved for perfect and eternal union with God forever. And that's begun now. It's not begun when I die and go to heaven. And so Christ giving me his grace has to be an inward change of who I am. We have to live lives worthy of the gospel. I think that's a beautiful setup and and some helpful distinctions. I want to do two things here. Um, First, I want to read a little quote that I got from Dr. Brian Cross um, from calltocommunion.com, where he talks about he thinks in a very qualified sense, you might be able to, you know, Catholics can still affirm Christ is our substitute, but you just got to qualify it. And then it's not that Calvinist version that you were just outlining there. And then after I read that, I'll maybe get a quick comment from you. And then I want to just hit you with a lightning round of verses. And these are like scripture passages that people will say support more of that Protestant Calvinist view of atonement over against a Catholic understanding, and then just kind of let you do the hard work of telling us how can we as a Catholic understand this verse. Does that sound good? Yeah. Okay. Here's the quote from uh, Dr. Brian Cross, which I'll link to in the show notes. It's uh, one of the comments back on their article on the atonement. You can read me, by the way. My name was John D. in the comments section back then. And that's that's when I was more like of a punk in my comments and like <laughs> kind of being a jerk and really pushing against the Catholic view a lot because I was not really sure where I stood on things. Right, right, right. And he was always very gracious and patient and always answered my questions. But here's what he said in, in one comment that actually wasn't directed at me. He said, quote, Christ really is our substitute. He did really bear the curse by bearing in his body the suffering and dissolution of death and by bearing in his spirit the desolation that is the absence of spiritual consolation. By taking these upon himself freely in self-sacrificial love, Christ offered something more pleasing to the Father than all of our sins are displeasing. And in this way, Christ merited for us the grace by which our sins are forgiven. We are restored to friendship with God and we are saved from the punishment of hell. So Christ bears the curse and in doing so participates in our punishment. In other words, the punishment of the curse so that we can participate in his divine life and avoid the ultimate punishment, separation from God. In that carefully qualified sense, Christ's atonement was one of penal substitution, but it was not one in which the father imputed all our sins to Christ and then poured out all his wrath for that sin 
on Christ. The Father never hated the sin or hated any sin in the Son because the Son was always sinless. And God the Father always sees the Son as the Son really is sinless. Christ took on all human sin, not by becoming intrinsically guilty and thus deserving of punishment, or by imputation and thus being falsely accused by an omniscient being, but by one, allowing himself to suffer the effects of the curse, and two, by seeing all the sin of all men for what it is in all its evil and in solidarity with us as sharing our nature with grief of contrition, freely and lovingly offering himself as a perfect sacrifice for it. End quote. What do you think of those distinctions there? Well, I think that's super important. The major distinction when you talk about Christ bearing the curse for us is the distinction that all the fathers make when they bring up the curse in their theology, which is simply this. He was not cursed by God. He took the curse of humanity, and especially of the Jewish people, and took that onto himself. There, th- This is the light that the... Um, I was watching a uh, Eastern Orthodox uh, retired metropolitan, right? So retired archbishop. He was going through, and uh, it was really funny because <laughs> the thing, it's like I, my, as a Roman Catholic, I look at the Orthodox as like the preservation of the fathers, like nothing's changed for 1,700 years, and I like reverence them. And then whenever you hear them, they're like these stinking crusaders and with their legalistic forensic obsessions, and I'm like, Please don't yell at me, right? <laughs> I just want to touch your beard. But um, so when when he was talking, he said this, um, and I thought it was it was rather profound about that. He said that all of the curses, when, or whenever the curse is mentioned, it is Christ absorbing the curse that had already been meted out to us, right? But to say that the Father cursed the Son, as R.C. Sproul said, "God damn you!" The Father says to the Son, "God damn you!" Right? And I feel so awkward saying that out loud. So I'm sorry. Um, But in doing that, he said, you would introduce division into the heart of the Trinity. You would introduce division into the heart of the Trinity, and you can never do that. Again, when you go back to the fathers, right, everything balances itself out because the soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, is always being understood within Trinitarian theology, Christology, and those things are being understood with by soteriology, why Christ came into the world to save us, right? And so to introduce division between the Father and the Son, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. It's not just, and then, you know, as soon as I say that, you hear the Reformed person saying, just keep reading for two more verses that talks about condemnation. And it's absolutely true. Those who reject Christ are not saved. Right. And the early church fathers understood not salvation, not in an individualistic perspective where it's like, I have faith, therefore I'm saved, which is what the reformers did. They understood salvation. And this is, I think, obviously the biblical way, but I belong to the church, which itself is saved. So therefore I'm saved. That is always how I belong to the body of Christ because the body of Christ hung on that cross for me, died to sin. By baptism, I'm united. Therefore, my incorporation. So you can say, what is salvation? It's incorporation. What is salvation, right? It's my being incorporated, being placed into the body of Jesus Christ because that's who the elect are. That's what the saved are. It's those who belong to the church, right? Not all those who are in the church are of the church, just like St. Paul says, not all those who are in Israel are of Israel. <clears throat> but in this in this very core meaning, you can't interpose ob, uh, an opposition between the Father and the Son. And mm. the Orthodox don't do it. The Orthodox have a massive allergy to yeah. doing that. 
Whereas in the Catholic Church, sometimes I feel like maybe our devotional Good Friday kind of um, the devotions that kind of grew out of Good Friday is like God is dead. We have killed him. That's that comes from the Lutheran Good Friday liturgy, which Nietzsche famously took up in his anthem. But this notion that like the father opposed the son and the son felt that abandonment and cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But if you understand Psalm 22, it's you're forsaken because you're surrounded by enemies. But if you read the end of the Psalm, Psalm 22, he's not forsaken at all, for he knows he will live. He will proclaim God's name among the congregation, and he will have vindication, right? So he, it's, it's this cry of dereliction, like everything is lost, but it's really not, right? And so for us as Catholics, we have to be careful because we have been so... um we have been so uh, Protestantized or um, that that language of the Reformation has become such a part of American culture that we hear it from Billy Graham. We hear it and we just kind of be like, yeah, that's true. And I was even talking with a Catholic priest. He's like, what well, substitutions in the catechism? I can still use that. And I'm like, it is in the catechism. I'll give you the exact reference. It is 615. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous, quoting Romans. By his obedience unto death, Jesus accomplished the substitution of the suffering servant. So many Reformed church people will say, well, go to Isaiah 53. That's really the heart and soul of substitutionary atonement. And as Catholics, we would say, yes, he's the substitution, meaning the consequences owed to us by sin and owed to Israel by its, by its covenant breaking. Jesus entered into that. Mm-hmm. He took and he was accursed. Many of the fathers would say he was accursed by humanity. He was cursed by the Romans to hang. He was betrayed by the Jews to hang. And so Jew and Greek unite to destroy the Son of God, but the Son of God used their sin, right, in order to bring about ultimately their reconciliation, right, which is mm. a whole movement of Paul. There's so much oh. more to talk about. There's so no, there's much so more. Much more. <laughs> Do you have, like, another 20 minutes? I, I can give you an hour. You want an hour? Oh I'll gosh. give you an hour, but I'll take 20 oh. minutes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, because I want to get into the specific passages of the Scripture, because okay. I think that's going to yeah. be really interesting. But just to... Um, you know, in maybe classic Pints of Aquinas fashion, steel man this a bit. Because when we level out objection about it drives a wedge between the father and the son, the typical response is, no, it doesn't, because the son willingly, freely enters into the plan. And they have all kinds of verses. Actually, what's very interesting is that classic verse in Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. A lot of people take that in the sense of like showing the divinity of Christ. I've heard Reformed Christians who are like, nah, it's more just, you know, I and the Father, we are one in the plan of salvation, that they are so united in their desire to save the elect through this plan, that because Jesus knows the plan and freely, willingly enters into it and accepts that this wrath will be poured on him by the Father, that's why it's not a fundamental ontological wedge that's driven between them. That's kind of the typical response that you're going to hear. I have my own thoughts on on what I would say, but I'm curious, or do you want me to go first or how would you answer that? Well, I mean, I think the main thing is understanding that the curse, the, the wrath of God owed to us, the ultimate manifestation of the wrath of God is hell, right? Oftentimes the wrath of God explained in sacred scripture is not God beating someone up to a bloody pulp, but God giving people over, as Romans 1 says, over mm. and over again. So he gave them up to their desires. That is the absolute most terrifying form of the wrath of God. And this is the thing that I think we miss being uh, Greek 
inheritance Gentile Christians instead of Jewish inheritance Christians. And what I mean by that is um, the one thing that that all the fathers, to an extent, that the reformers more so are missing is the Jewish notion of sacrifice and why sacrifice had to happen and what it did. And the reason why I say this is what did Adam and Eve have in the garden? They had immediate, the the presence of God unmediated. It was immediate, right? They were in the presence of God. So they, the sin of Adam in choosing himself over and against the creator leads to, and this is Augustine saying this, it leads to man from that moment on running from God by going after creatures, right? Creaturely things, goods, pleasures, whatever, which further increases our alienation from God. And we begin to experience it as self-alienation. And obviously uh, in Genesis, you know, we, we see it on, on display by putting of the fig leaves, we're alienated from our beloved, right? And so this threefold alienation of God, others, and self rips through all of human history. You want to see it? Well, look at Cain and Abel. You want to see it? Look at the sons of Cain versus the sons of Seth. And then all of a sudden now you have the flood and you have all the over and over again. Now we're finally out of the flood. And what did you do, Noah? What happened, Cain or Canaan? Like what is happening, Ham? Like all this craziness going on. So the, the problem is a sin problem. And what does sin do more than anything else? It drives out the presence of God. Okay. That's the remedy that we need. We need the presence of God. So what happens? In his fullness, in the fullness of time, Jesus Christ, who is God, takes on a fallen human nature and is present to us. But how does he take away the sin of the world? Well, then we have to ask ourselves in Judaism, in the Jewish context, or in the Yahwist context, the older, you know, first temple, pre-temple, you know, Judaism or whatever, Old Testament religion, what is sin? Sin is, first and foremost, a pollution, right? I love the modern analogies of disease, right, the infection of sin. Too often we reduce sin to nothing other than a moral infraction. Right. And I think that's absolutely the position that Luther was going through because here he was an insanely scrupulous man who was really tied up with his repeated infractions of the moral law. Lord knows what it was. One can guess. Um, but here he was insanely scrupulous. And his confessor said, you know, you don't have to go to confession every time you break wind. Like, come on, like Luther, back off. You really did say that. And so the idea at its core is sin is pollution. That is, it renders a person impure. Impure for what? Impure for the presence of God. Why did God have to kick Adam and Eve out of the garden? It was because the garden represented paradise, a walled garden, purity, relationship with God. Sin enters in. They didn't fight the sin. They didn't guard the garden. They didn't keep the garden. Sin won in the form of the serpent, betraying the disobedience, all of that. So they're expelled. But then what happens, right? Throughout human history, you have God coming to his people. And almost every single time, the people fail <laughs> to come to God, right? There's a handful of moments where it's amazing. Moses being one of them, right? You have Abraham and his intercession, but even Abraham fails. Even Moses fails. Even King David fails when you look through salvation history. The pinnacle, though, is the creation of the temple and the use of sacrifices. And when you just read the first five chapters of Leviticus, which is the most boring stuff for some people, but for me, studying atonement theology, that's where the word atonement in Hebrew Kippur is used, right? Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. That's in Leviticus 16. But in Leviticus 1 through 5, 1 through 6, it's just, this is how you do the sacrifice. 
And for all the sacrifices for sin, you kill an animal outside the tent, not inside the tent or inside the temple. You kill, you don't even kill it on the altar. Did you know that? You don't even kill it on the altar. Pagans killed it on the altar because it was a substitute for them. I deserve to die. So I'm going to kill this animal on the altar, on this place of holiness, so that the gods will kill the animal and accept it and not me, right? But for Jews, that was not the point. The point was to get the blood. You gather the blood. You splash it. You take, they would say, take your thumb and put it, smear it on the horn of the altar. Then splash some before the Holy of Holies, before the entrance of the Holy of Holies. Not inside. That's only for the Day of uh, Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. But in front of it, splash some of the sin offering in front of it. Why? Because that's for that sinner to be going, able to go to the presence of Yahweh. Yahweh was present there in the Holy of Holies. My sin keeps me from entering the Holy of Holies. When you go to the book of Revelation, Scripture says that nothing unclean or impure will enter it. Again, to this pollution notion of sin. And how is heaven described? It's a box. It's a cube, right? It's all the same cubits, uh, up, down, left, right. Why? Because that was the Holy of Holies. And so you have the Ark of the Covenant inside the Holy of Holies. You have the mercy seat or the lid. And the whole point of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, was so first they put the sins on the scapegoat and they chase the scapegoat off. The scapegoat, and this is the thing for my Reformed brothers, the scapegoat. I was just going to ask about this. Well, this will be our first scripture because I was going to say Leviticus 16 literally, let me ask about that because that was good. That was an excellent setup to this. This will be my first one. It literally reports it reports a priest calling down the, or saying the sins of the people quote unquote transferring them onto a goat and then sending it out to die and a lot of people will say well that's just like Jesus taking our guilt upon himself and then getting punished in his flesh with the punishment that we deserved um what do you make of this the goat was not sent out to die technically in the ritual it was sent out to the desert to meet up with some being called Azazel. We don't really know the kind of the best Jewish um, evidence is. Maybe it's a, a demon god co-opted from the, the Canaanite pre-existing cult of a desert demon or something like that. But the idea was you have one for Yahweh and one for Azazel. You put the sins of the people on the goat. Guess what happens to that goat, my friend? It's unclean. It is unfit for sacrifice. Okay, so then they chase the goat out of town, right? And then once it's out of town, there's a guy in the desert whose job is to get the goat, escort him to the side of a hill, and shove him off. Why do they shove him off? Because they don't want him doing a U-turn and going back into the city, re-polluting the city. So that guy out in the desert, you know what he does? He gets naked. He sets his clothes on fire. Then he puts on a new pair of clothes, and now he's able to come in because he's not polluted by the scapegoat. Meanwhile, they sacrifice the other animal right there outside the temple. He has new garments on. The high priest has new garments on. And he walks around with a bowl, a golden bowl. And he takes the blood and he flings it with his fingers all over the sacred utensils and cups and bowls and incensors. And, oh, that ginormous candelabra, right? The menorah, the tree of life. That's what the menorah is. Many people don't know that. It's a symbol of the tree of life. Right there, there's all this artwork of angels and plants and animals and all this stuff all inside the temple. Why is he throwing blood around like a maniac? He's doing it 
because the Jewish understanding of blood is that the lifeblood of the animal or the person is in the blood. And so it acts as a, and this is true, a detergent. It cleanses the pollution away from the holy place. So he goes through, he scatters the blood, then he prepares himself. He enters into the holy of holies. And he takes the blood, and while intoning the prayers, by the way, the prayers that he says, it, I can't remember what psalm it is. Oh, I'm going to butcher it. We'll just say Psalm 131. It's totally not that, but we'll just say that. He begins to say this prayer, and these were the psalms that he would say uh, on the Feast of Yom Kippur. And it's it actually is the threefold categories of sin that we have in the Catholic Church. There are accidental sins, so what we would say mistakes, right? Things I did without sufficient knowledge. There are minor infractions, what the Jewish encyclopedia written in 1906 calls venial sin. And then there are willful violations of the law, which uh, we would equate as mortal sin. And then he intones this, this beautiful psalm in front of the ark, and he's begging God for forgiveness, but God's not there. Do you know why? Because it's polluted with the sins of Israel. So he shoves his fingers in the bowl and he flings the blood onto the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, also known as the mercy seat, so that it can be purified that God's presence may come back down and be in the middle of the city to be with his people. When the So this is why, like, this is how much Protestantism and, and the Lutheran approach is so woven into our culture. Whenever I ever heard about the veil of the temple being torn from top to bottom, what did you hear? You always heard that's because now we get to go right to God. Jesus is right here. No, it's it's empty. The presence is gone. The real temple is right outside the city hanging on a cross and he just died. Ichabod, the glory departs, right? So that's the whole point of that narrative, right? Is God ripped the veil open and look, nothing's there. There's no Ark of the Covenant and there's no Shekinah glory cloud filling the temple because now the darkness has begun. The Son of Man has entered into death, right? And so this whole narrative, sin pollutes. So how is Jesus the lamb who takes away the sin of the world? Well, his blood redeems the world, right? Mm. It purifies the world so that God's presence is not just for the Jews or for the Benjaminites or for the, you know, the Israelites in Jerusalem and those who are affiliated with it. But Zion, the glory of Zion, goes forth to all the nations, right? So the blood of Christ shed. This is St. Paul's now. He's thinking, he's meditating on what the Gospels are talking about. And he's like, now I get it. He fulfills the Abrahamic covenant, which bypasses the Mosaic covenant. Therefore, the Gentiles, which Abrahamic covenant said, Jesus will be a, well, his descendant will be a blessing to the nations or to the families of, of the whole earth. Right now, Jesus can be because his blood touched the earth. So if Mm. the life is in the blood and his blood has been shed and his blood, you know, come on, Hebrews 10, right? The blood of bulls and goats don't take away sin. Consequently, a body you have prepared for me, right? So his blood redeems the whole world. And that's why he goes into the heavenly sanctuary with a better sacrifice because he's the priest and he's the victim and he's the temple. Right. He's all of them. Right. So this is the beautiful thing about the body of Christ. Right. The whole person that this is why the fathers always emphasize this metaphysical foundations, the incarnation, which sets up the redemption. But Jesus says, for this, I came into the world. Should I say, let this cup pass? No, for this reason, I came into the world. So it's all ordered into one thing. And this is why the Eucharist, you can't go 
five minutes reading the fathers about the death of Jesus and not go into the Eucharist. The once for all sacrifice whereby we commune in his body and blood, right? It's all tied to that cross. Anywho, I talked too long. <laughs> no, but that was really good. What's clicking for me is that it's no wonder that the New Testament writers, they never describe Christ as the scapegoat. The scapegoat wasn't allowed to enter into the sanctuary. He was chased off the cliff, like you said. Instead, um, St. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Yeah. So if anything, it doesn't say Christ, our scapegoat. Yom Kippur scapegoat, yeah. has been chased out. It says Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. I so, think that's a big distinction. Yeah, yeah so think about think about who are the righteous in the book of Revelation. How do they get their robes white? What do they wash it in? Mm-hmm. The blood of the lamb. It's a detergent. The white symbolizes, or the, the robes symbolize our souls, whatever it is, right? And our robes have been washed in the what? The blood of the lamb, right? <sighs> so Jesus Christ, now what, what is the, the curse, right? Going back to that curse, I don't know if you knew this. This is fascinating to me. I got yelled at by someone via Catching Fox's email that I used the word fascinating too much, so I apologize. But uh, in um, in uh, the early days of inaugurating U.S. presidents, they didn't make them swear on a Bible. They made them swear on an open Bible, which was open to the book of curses in the book of Deuteronomy, right? Which I think is pretty dang epic, right? That's fascinating. And the curses, if you're not familiar, you should just take some a warm summer day and just read it. Because uh, it is the most horrific thing you will read in the Bible. God's like, I'm going to, sorry, children, you're going to get sold into slavery. Good luck. But the whole idea is it culminates in if you keep turning to idols and not to me, all of these horrible things are going to follow, fall upon you as a consequence, just like Adam in the garden. Death was not God's punishment. Death is the natural consequence of severing yourself from life. So with this trajectory, right? The idea is you want to be like all the other nations. I will send you to them. Fine. Like that's a constant refrain. We want a king over us to be like all the other nations. So God sends them in exile to Babylon. The northern kingdoms are gone. They're the northern kingdom, the, the 10 tribes up north, they're gone. Assyria wiped them out. How do we regather them? Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel talks about <clears throat> God tells him to break a stick, then join it together. That's what I'm going to do with the two kingdoms. Assyria wiped them off the face of the earth. They don't exist anymore. They are scattered to the nations. Now, the, the bottom two tribes under Judah, the biggest tribe in Benjamin, they're there with Levite, which doesn't have a land because it has a role, a mission, right? So the tribe of Levi doesn't have property like all the other tribes do. So what happens? Babylon comes against them and takes them off into exile. And that's where you have the beautiful words of the prophet Malachi. We don't have the temple. We don't have the sacrifices. How do we live? The righteous will live by faith. Okay, so think about that. We are in exile. We are away from the temple. We are away from the ritual sacrifices of the Mosaic law. How do we follow God now? By faith. Okay. Then they come back. So God sends them to the nations, but they never really have self-rule. They do for a brief time under Simon Maccabeus and his children, but they were Levites. People forget this. The Maccabees were Levites, not Judahites. Therefore, they never should have had the scepter. They were they that's why the first like three or four generations of of Hasmonians called themselves princes, not kings, because only a Davidic mm. heir could be a king. Okay, so they ruled and then they were so evil they began murdering each other, and then Herod married the last of the Hasmonean princesses and then conquered conquered. It was it was nuts. But the reason why I bring this up is they were still under the curse of Deuteronomy. 
that while they might have come home and rebuilt the temple, they never had self-rule like they did in the time of David and Solomon, the son of David. And so N.T. Wright, famous Anglican bishop and scholar, he talks about that this whole new um, new perspective on Paul. It's really, that's a terrible name for it. It should be called a new perspective on the old covenant. Because once you understand the old covenant correctly, you can understand Paul and what he's trying to say. And what he's saying is, Jews, we failed the covenant. We are in exile, so the Son of God became a son born under the law, born out of a woman, born under the law, to take the curse of the law from us. And what is the curse of the law? The book of Deuteronomy lists them all out, right? So he took all the consequences of the violation of law into himself. But in doing that, what did God do? And I love this. Everything comes together in Christ Jesus. God says, I want to be your king. The people say, no, we want to be like the nation. So give us a king. So what does God say to Samuel? It's not you they're rebelling against. It's me. Give them a king. So eventually he gives them David, right? God writes straight with our crooked lines, a man after God's own heart. But that's not the fulfillment. He wants them to have him as king. So what does he do? He comes in the line of David and he actually becomes their king, right? Hanging from the cross over his head. King of the Jews, right? That's the magnificent way. Okay, you want to be an idolater? You want to worship creatures? Guess what the creator just did? He became, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now we can see him, taste him, right? Touch him. We can yell at him. We can do all the things. So now the creator has become a creature. He's writing straight with our crooked lines. And the same comes true with the curse. We incurred all of these punishments, the curses, the natural consequence of our severing our supernatural covenant, our supernatural union with God. And so what befalls us is all of these curses. And Christ says, I'll take them on to me so that you can walk in freedom. And not only that, I'm going to send, I'm going to reunite Israel, Northern kingdom with the Southern kingdom by sending you to the nations but not in exile. I'm sending you with me, right, in faith. And so now the gospel is going out, you could say, to restore all of Israel, Romans 9 through 11. He's going, Paul is preaching like he sees the vision. The way that the the two sticks that Ezekiel saw, the way it comes together is if Israel's been scattered to the nations, well, then to the nations we go. And that's how the covenant of Abraham brings the good news of Christ out into the world is that's where the rest of Israel is. So we're going to bring Israel back together, united under Christ. And in so doing that at one minute, the Jew and Gentile now become one, right? The, the thing that polluted and kept us from being united has now been cleansed. And so it's possible for the presence of God to dwell with us in our hearts, in our tabernacles. It's beautiful. Beautiful. The reality is that young people today are growing up in a largely post-Christian culture, making choosing the faith all the more difficult. A vast majority of Catholic youth are disconnecting from the church during their teenage years. Something clearly isn't working. Net Ministries is passionate about challenging young Catholics to love Christ and embrace the life of the church. That's why working alongside youth ministers, parishes, and schools, Net Missionaries help young people encounter the person of Christ through evangelization and discipleship. As a Net Missionary, you will meet young people who need to hear your particular story. Your journey with the Lord matters. You can be an example to young people of how to make the faith their own, allowing Christ to enter into their lives. Your story has a purpose. The Lord has a call for you. If you are between the ages of 18 and 28 and interested in serving the Lord as a net missionary, go to netusa.org apply and fill out an application. Not able to apply yourself? 
Share about Net's mission with a young adult in your life and encourage them to apply today. That's netnetusa.org slash apply. Thanks to our friends over at Net Ministries for sponsoring this episode of Catching Foxes. I love having you on, Mike Gormley, because you just kind of ooze salvation history, and I'm getting like such a refresher and all these connections that I didn't know when I was younger. So I, I'm going to say you've adequately dealt with Leviticus 16. I want to get your take on a few more of these verses. Yeah, let's They've go actually quick. I'll come go up quick. I'll go quick. Along the way, these will be like the lightning round version, because <laughs> you've actually kind of answered these a little bit along the yeah. way. The biggest one is Isaiah 53, which you brought up. And some people say this supports the Reformed view. I'm just going to read a few parts of it. Yeah. It says, quote, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. End quote. That's Isaiah 53, 4 to 6. And then also there's a big one in uh, verse 10. It says, quote, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So people will point to language like that, that he laid on him the guilt of us all. It pleased the Lord to crush him, saying that, yeah, look, this is the Father, you know, transferring the guilt over to Christ and then just pouring out his wrath on him. That's reformed penal substitution. How would you respond to that? Yeah, I think in a certain way, as Catholics, we would agree with that statement, just like you read earlier uh, about penal substitutionary atonement. Christ is a substitution. He substituted his obedience for our disobedience. The next question is, okay, it pleased God to crush him. What does that look like? So I asked Dr. Shree for him on every niche about, I asked for him to explain it. And I loved his analogy. He says, if my son falls into, I tell him, don't go near the river, don't go near the river, it's rapids, there's rocks. And you go and he falls in. What am I going to do? I'm going to jump in after him because I love my son. I want to protect my son. And I know full well I'm going to get beaten and battered by these rocks. But that's what it takes in order to save him. He said, that's the kind of pleasure that my wife would have in me knowing I would be crushed, you know, whatever, damaged by these rocks in order to save my son. And he said, that's the pleasure that God the Father derives from the crucifixion of his son is that it leads to their salvation. It's not that God wasn't giddy that his son was being brutalized. And here's the deal. There are people that hold that notion. There are skeptics who think all Christians believe that, and so they call God the Father the cosmic child abuser. And there is even a member at the National Council of Churches, African groups, who argued for armed resistance to kill non-believers, right, like straight-up Muslim style, um, Boko Haram style, Um because if God could use violence to bring about our salvation, surely we could in response. So this is why the church condemns certain attitudes and, and theories of the atonement without giving us a one definitive overall. The other reason why the church doesn't give it to us absolutely clearly is there's this thing called mystery. And I thought that just applied to the Trinity, right? You know, but it really does apply to sin. We call it the Mysterium Iniquitatis, right? The mystery of iniquity. How did Adam and Eve sin knowing what they knew about God and being in his presence? Why would they choose themselves? Well, the same is true about the mystery of atonement. That's why 
the church has not definitively come down. In fact, St. Athanasius says, when you hear us preach about this, you will find us saying the same things over and over again as we get ever closer to the mystery. But he's trying to say, ultimately, ultimately, it is a mystery that we can't give you a precise scientific explanation. Now, that being said, what what have some of the, especially St. Thomas Aquinas, what have they said? Well, number one, uh, the church fathers called this the marvelous exchange that Jesus took upon himself our fallen human nature and our sins to a certain extent, right? The, the, we would just say the Calvinist takes it too far in saying that God punished him as if he himself had sinned, but he did take the guilt of us all upon himself. Another thing I would caution, that's part of the marvelous exchange. What's owed to Jesus is eternal life. That's, Can I make a yeah. distinction there? Yes, please. Because people, people are going to hear that differently. He takes the guilt of us upon yeah. himself. The One of the views, like, there, say, certain Reformed views will take that as he literally, it is as if he was guilty of these in his will, in his person. Right. He accepts you know, that guilty status before right. the judge right. of being guilty of these sins. And it becomes true by imputation that he is the one who committed them, essentially. Right. Now, not true in, as in he did commit them, but it, he is considered to have been the one who committed them. Whereas what we're saying is he takes the guilt upon himself as the one who's going to be satisfying yeah. for that guilt. He takes upon himself all of our sins and all of that, and he endures it in solidarity with us, he carries that burden so as to offer up a sacrifice, a loving sacrifice that's more pleasing than all of those sins are displeasing. So the the, the question becomes is, and I think the Isaiah passage is a fine verse to cite, but it's underdetermined. In what sense is the guilt laid upon him? Is it laid upon him as in he becomes guilty by imputation, or is it laid upon him so that he can then deal with it as the loving sacrifice. And I think that's crucial. Go ahead. So in uh, the Catechism 601, it references specifically these passages in Isaiah 53. And it says, in particular, Jesus's redemptive death fulfills Isaiah's prophecy of the suffering servant. Indeed, Jesus himself explained the meaning of his life and death in the light of God's suffering servant, which is very important for us to understand because the suffering servant narratives is what takes the death of a well, let's say a heroic innocent and turns it into a sacrifice, right? We use the word sacrifice all the time to describe when people die, you know, like a police officer, a, a fireman dying in a fire. He sacrificed himself so that others could live, right? But the Jews did not mean sacrifice in a nebulous and wide reaching of a way. That's kind of that Hellenization of, of our approach that we inherit by not being Jews, right? So, the first understanding of the suffering servant is exactly this. He takes upon himself the consequences, the full consequences of our guilty conscience, right? So that means that like sin and death, right? The wages of sin is death. The consequences is alienation from God. So he takes a fallen human nature and joins it to himself. So everyone who has ever held that human nature Jesus is now in absolute solidarity with, right? The Vatican Council says, in a certain way, he has united himself to every man by taking on a human nature. So within that, we can understand that, yeah, he is the suffering servant, right? He describes himself as that suffering servant. So he is going to the cross. Now, why did he have to die? In a lot of ways, you can say, this is how he takes the guilt of us, because the guilt produces, or the sin produces alienation. 
So by coming to us in the way and manner that he did, he overcomes the alienation that our guilt, right? Our guilt, just like Adam and Eve in that famous painting of Michelangelo, of their guilty faces being driven from the garden by the serpent or the um, seraph angel, right? That's what Jesus Christ bore away. He took it away from us so that we could come home. Right, so that we could be restored to the Father, and I do think I do think that this this understanding of alienation would go a lot further within Reformed theologies because they say that Jesus essentially self alienated in taking on our sin. That's why he cried out the cry of dereliction, "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" For in that moment, he forsook God because it was totally imputed; all the sin was imputed. As Catholics, we say that necessarily divides the Trinity. You wouldn't, you should not go that far. Instead, there is an other way, a totally different way of interpreting these passages that upholds substitution but denies the reprobation, right? And that's what we need to do. That's, I think, the the sure um, pathway forward is stepping out of or away from viewing Jesus as he committed the sin. So then what they classically do is they go to the next verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21, Yes, that was the next one I was going to bring up. So let me read that because that I have in evidence as well. It says, well, hey, okay, maybe you can explain Isaiah, but it says here, I'm reading from the ESV, quote, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, end quote. He made him to be sin. They take that as, you know, part of the reprobation, him taking on our guilt, all that stuff. What do you do with that verse? That makes sense if you are an inheritor of a Hellenistic worldview that tries to look at this from philosophical eyes instead of within the Hebrew cult. The Hebrew cult, Leviticus 1 through 5, just sit down and read it. Um, In the Septuagint, the Greek translation, over and over again when it talks about a sin offering, right, the bull calf that's killed, the lamb that's killed, the he goat that's killed, those are sin or guilt offerings that are offered. It just says, uh, it doesn't say a sin offering or a sin sacrifice. In the Greek, it just says sin, right? right? Take this for sin. And it's like, what, for sin? You mean for a sin offering? But it doesn't say that. And that is a common phrase throughout the Septuagint, as we know Jesus and Paul drew from the Septuagint when they wrote. So if you look at he, or First Corinthians, um, 2 Corinthians 5.21, he became a sin offering. Okay, if you understand Paul as drawing on the temple liturgy, and why wouldn't he? Great descendant uh, or great student of Gamaliel, right? A Jew beyond all Jews, a Pharisee of Pharisees, right? Why wouldn't he draw on the temple language? He is. He's deliberately drawing on the temple language of what happened. So what do you do in a sin offering? You kill it outside. Where was Jesus killed? Outside the temple or in the temple? Outside the city or inside the city? He was killed outside. And what happened? Well, then it's the blood. It's all to get the blood. And that's why St. Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, uh, or excuse me, in Ephesians chapter 1 talks about, for in him we have the forgiveness of our sins through the redemption by his blood. It's the blood that brings the forgiveness because his blood is the detergent that wipes away the sin. So baptism now takes on a whole new dimension because the water is a sign of his blood, right? It is the cleansing power of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And so when we stop and look at all of these things from the Jewish temple perspective, we can see that 2 Corinthians chapter 5 makes absolute sense within this Catholic paradigm, 
because it's saying that Jesus Christ was made to be a sin offering. If you look in Hebrews, Hebrews' number one image of Jesus' sacrifice is not the Paschal Lamb. That's the four Gospels that tends to be Paul's. It's first, first Corinthians 10 and 11. That's definitely Paul's thing. Christ, our Paschal Lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the feast, right? Hebrews, it's all Yom Kippur, right? We have a greater high priest who takes his blood into the greater sanctuary, right? Not made with human hands. And so that is a sin offering making atonement. So, yeah, it perfectly coincides. So Jesus par excellence is the Paschal Lamb, and they all kind of point us to that. All the Gospels, you know, John, behold the Lamb of God. But the Paschal Lamb wasn't a sin offering. In fact, the Orthodox Metropolitan that I referenced at the beginning, he hates that the Protestant, and he bl- he blames on the Catholics, have this notion that Jesus was sin. He said Jesus wasn't a sin offering. He was the Paschal Lamb. And the Paschal Lamb is not offered for sin, nor is it a substitute. Right in Egypt, it wasn't a substitute. It wasn't a sin. It was a sign of communion with God. Take an unblemished male lamb in the prime of life, slaughter it whole, spread its bloods in your doorposts and lintel, cook it, roast it completely, and eat it with unleavened bread and bitter spices. Right, or bitter herbs, bitter herbs and spices like Kentucky Fried Chicken. Um, but the idea of it at its core for the for the metropolitan was there. This isn't a sin offering. It is a communion and and. I'm hearing him and I'm like, but Paul repeatedly draws on more than just the Paschal Lamb. And then the guy goes on to reference Hebrews and I'm like, all of Hebrews is Yom Kippur. But then he says, yeah, but the scapegoat, that had the sin put on it and then was chased away. The other animal was slaughtered. It's like, yeah, but it was still slaughtered as a Yom Kippur, as as an atonement sacrifice, right? And so uh, I just want to end with this one part. Over and over again in the book of Leviticus, where it talks about um, the death of animals, right, for sin or for guilt, it always uses the word, um, and you make atonement, and this is for redemption, right? They spl- And it's always about the movement of blood, right? Whether you're smearing it here or splashing it there or throwing it under the altar, it's always about getting the blood. It's not about the killing at all. It's not about the killing at all. It's about the getting of blood. When it talks about the offerings of wheat. It always calls it, you know, cereal offerings. It calls them memorial offerings. It uses the word memorial, not the word redemption, right? Not the word atonement, but memorial. So when you look at Christ in the Eucharist, what does he do on the night before he dies? He turns this heroic death that is going to happen, and he shows us the inner meaning. He pulls back the curtain, and he shows that this is not a heroic innocent going to his death against the tyranny of the state, like whatever Albert Schweitzer said, throwing himself courageously on the wheels of history and getting crushed underneath it. No, what he is doing is a sacrifice. And he's fulfilling all the sacrifices of the Hebrew Old Testament. And the most important being, right, you could say is the Akedah, the binding of Isaac. You have the binding of Jesus to the cross. You could say it's the blood of innocent Abel, who the blood of Jesus speaks more eloquently than, right? The the New Testament actually has a global vision of the whole prefigurement of all the sacrifices culminating in the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Right, So you have atonement, you have sin offering, you have a cereal offering done, do this in memorial, in remembrance of me, right? You have all this stuff. And just the other day, I'm going to end here, I already said that once, uh, <laughs> redemption and sacrifice is so important. 
because I'm sitting there and I'm reading, uh, I'm reading Psalm 50. I'm, I'm doing a youth conference. I'm at, um, uh, good old, uh, what do you call it? The, um, Steubenville Youth Conference in St. Louis, Mid-America. And I'm sitting there and I'm reading Psalm 50. The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. I love that. And then when you start to read this, and it talks about um, the sacrifices and the offerings. I will accept no bull from your house, which actually was a, a motto that my dad would say. Uh, no, he go from your folds for every forest on the cattle is mine. What he's doing in these verses in 50, um, 9, 10, 11, is he's saying, I'm not a pagan God. You don't kill an animal because I'm hungry. I don't drink the blood because I'm thirsty. If I wanted to eat and drink, I wouldn't ask you because I can do whatever I want. But he talks about all of this stuff is a true sacrifice. And this is how we phrase it. To offer, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the most high. And call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. Mark this, verse 22 and following. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear, and there be none to deliver. He who brings thanksgiving as his sacrifice honors me. To him who orders his way aright, I will show the way of salvation. So here's the problem. In the cult of the temple, you could offer an external sacrifice, and your hearts could be far from God. So what did Jesus do? He took the heart that was absolutely dedicated to God, even to death. Hebrew says, son though he was, he learned obedience through what he suffered. So he suffered. How do you know Jesus loves the Father? Because he's willing to do his will, even to the worst place imaginable. Only one time in the entire Old Testament, in one of the Psalms, I think it's Psalm 63, he says, for your love is better than life. Nothing in the Old Testament is described as being better than life. Everything, all the, all the Psalms of deliverance are about this life, right? And so here is Jesus willing to give up this life for his love. And what does he do in this dramatic self-gift, this offering? He leaves for us the only thing we can possibly do, which is to say thank you. A memorial of thanksgiving is also the sacrifice that we bring to God. Right. So it culminates in everything in both, right? The creation of the world through the word, the word becoming flesh, and then through the spoken word of the priest, the sacrament of the altar becomes for us the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus that we can share in communion with him forever. I love it. I love it. Well, I love it too. So you've dealt with uh, this, by the way, this is not a lightning round because you're giving us incredible <laughs> dissertations, lightning round. but it's, but it's still very good. You've dealt with Leviticus 16, Isaiah 53, Galatians 313. I'm going to say you dealt with a lot with the curse stuff already. Second yeah. Corinthians 521. We just talked about, and I'll, I'll just flag also Augustine um, specifically took that view. He became sin. Sin means a sin offering there, that that's a possible interpretation. Mm-hmm. St. Augustine particularly mentioned that. Um, why don't we deal with at least one more? How about Romans 8.3? Uh, I would give you two more, but we'll see. I don't know. I, I don't want to I don't <laughs> I don't know if it. I have it in me. Okay, one more then. It says, quote, Romans 8.3, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. And some people make it sound um, that that notion that God is literally condemning the sin in the flesh of Christ, that that is that, you know, father pouring out the wrath on his son, that um, reformed penal substitutionary view. How do you take a passage like that? 
Yeah, I mean, I take it as it stands. He condemned sin in the flesh. He absolutely did in the body of Christ Jesus, right? But Jesus was a sin offering, right? So he became the offering that ends the sin that dominates our life, that's allowed to reign over us. Remember, you can't get to Romans 3 without, or Romans 8 without going through Romans 5. And Romans 5 is very clear that sin and death reigned over us, that de- the devil had, a th- had exercised dominion over all those who are in bondage to sin. Right. And as long as we, as long as we seek our own corruption, right, the devil holds sway over us. In, in Hebrews chapter two, uh, the devil is shown as holding bondage over all of us because we have a fear of death, right? Not just death, but a fear of death. We're subject to lifelong bondage. So Jesus died to break us from that fear of death. But N.T. Wright says this very clearly, right? God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as a sin offering. So you have the two things, the incarnation, that metaphysical reality that he takes on our fallen human nature and unites it to himself. So yes, when he dies on the cross, the dominion of sin no longer reigns. Sin doesn't reign over us. Death, Satan, whatever you want to call it, no longer reigns over us because Christ is the perfect once for all sin offering. Right there on the cross, the sin offering is made, reconciliation occurs, right? So you don't have to hold that God cursed Jesus and filled him with our sin in order to get the exact same result that the reformers are looking for, which is freedom from the dominion of sin, death, and darkness. That was kind of lightning-ish. That was excellent. No, that was ec- – okay, I'm going to hit you with the last one then. First Peter 2.24 oh, says, quote, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, end quote. All of this like boring our sins to some that can sound very much like a guilt transfer that he, you know, took us, took the guilt on himself. Um, how do you take this passage in first Peter? Um, again, by his wounds, we are healed. He's referencing uh, Isaiah 53 in that we absolutely hold that there is no redemption. There's no buying back from bondage, slavery, sin, death, darkness, hell, Satan, without the death of Christ and his resurrection, right? So in his body on the cross, he did indeed bear our sins, but not in a way as if he himself had committed those sins. So he bore our sins because now he, the fullest manifestation of our alienation from God, is revealed the wages of sin is death. Death is revealed all the way back in the garden as a consequence of eating the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So Jesus, in dying on the cross, nailed to the tree, right? And that's very important for our understanding. St. Paul is trying to, or St. Peter, is trying to show how the cross is not just like a, a, a gibbet, right? It's not just a tool for torturous death. It's the tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil from which you surely die. You die the death. In Hebrew, you die, die. You really, really die. Jesus takes the tree and is nailed to the tree of knowledge of good and evil, right? He takes all of that, all of the things that have resulted from Adam to today to the end of time. He takes all of that alienation from God onto himself so that we can have righteousness because there is no righteousness except for his death on the cross. 
Well, Michael Gormley, this has been an incredible, you know, run through of Hour the atonement. <laughs> oh my gosh. You know, I was thinking originally 40 or 50 minutes, I'll, I'll hit you with a lightning round. But no, they, like I said, you just ooze salvation history. These explanations of the verses are incredible. I'll link to the books and things you mentioned in the show notes page. Um, I mean, this might be really hard. I was going to say, what if you just had like a minute or two to explain the atonement to someone who hadn't heard of Jesus. Hmm. You know, if you were kind of pitching this for the first time to honestly, and a lot of young people, you know, they may have heard of Jesus, but they don't really know the story of salvation. Where would you start in, you know, just a minute or so elevator pitch style? Why, you know, is Jesus important and his, Jesus and his sacrificial death? How do you get that across to someone who doesn't really know him or the story? What would you say to that? And then we will finally let you go and enjoy your vacation. Uh, so a guy in prison said, all these preachers tell me Jesus died for me. Well, guess what? I didn't ask him to die for me. Don't put that guilt on me. It's not my fault he died. I didn't ask him to. So why are you trying to guilt me into your religion by saying he loves me so much he died for me? I didn't ask him to. This is what I said. The death of Jesus Christ is not a guilt trip <laughs> to get you to follow him. Like, well, look at what he did. You better respond. I said, look around. You're in prison, right? You've entered into a literal prison by your own sins, of which I am in a figurative prison of my own sins. How do I find freedom? How do I escape this horrible darkness that I have brought into my own life? How can I said, you know, th this guy in particular, alienated from his wife and kids, right? They, she divorced him as soon as he got sentenced. They never talk to him. Can you imagine that? You're in jail for 20 years, and you never see your kids or hear from them again. And I said, the result of sin is our alienation from God. And the isolation that we experience, we hate it so much, we lash out, we do whatever we can, we sin more, which isolates us even more, so we ramp up even more. How do we break any of this cycle unless one who is outside comes in to the very heart of the ugliness within us and doesn't turn away, doesn't run, doesn't balk, doesn't say you're too dirty, you're too filthy, you're not good enough, doesn't reject you because of a prison sentence from a judge and jury who comes to you. The judge himself comes to you and knows every single thing that you've done wrong and says that he's not going anywhere, that the absolute solidarity of God is what that cross manifests, the absolute solidarity of God with us. So you're not alone. The death represents how much more powerful Christ is over your sin mm -hmm. because he rose. So don't be afraid. Now, that, this guy couldn't make that commitment. He couldn't. He couldn't. But at least it wasn't just a guilt trip for him of, well, you better do it. Look what he did to you. Oh, man. Well, that, that was incredible. Michael Gormley, you have given us an incredible crash course in the atonement, what Catholics believe, how we would take different scripture passages, how it relates to the Old Testament and New Testament. You really have a gift for bringing those together. So that's why I love having you on to talk about this stuff. Please let listeners know, where can they go to find out more about your work? And then we'll <laughs> say goodbye. Uh, Layevangelist.com. It's a website seen by dozens I think uh, I've edited it three times in the past 12 months, so there's a lot of good stuff there. Um, you go to soundcloud.com slash amdgomer. That's where I put I, – I thought that was my username. Turns out it's the URL. Whoopsie. I don't know how technology works. But I have over 120 
or uh, 250 now, I think, um, free talks that I've given um, over the years. So that's a lot of stuff there. Catching Foxes is a podcast. Every Knee Shall Bow is a podcast. There's all good stuff. And I have to tell I will, you. Oh, what about that course? Is that course available? That course, yeah, it's still available. Reasonablefaith.thinkific.com. It's still free. I haven't been able to charge because we still have students signing up. And I'm like, oh, people from other schools are signing up. And I'm like, what, what is St. Austin Prep doing here? So, whoopsie. But um, I got to tell you, John, I have to stop listening to your podcast because I have no more budget for books this year. And every show I listen to. I just end up, I still have Aristotle's revenge just hanging out. I haven't even, I've got four pages into it and I'm like, well, I give up. <laughs> it's, it's costly <laughs> listening to your show. It's well, costly. I will make sure. Thank you. I will make sure to link to a bunch of that great stuff that you guys are doing. Keep up the good work. I love that course. So if that course is available for free, people should snag it. But yeah. you know, I'll link to uh, your talks, links, website, podcast. Keep up the great work. Michael Gormley, thanks again for coming today. It's been a blast. Yeah, it's been fun, man. Thank you. Thank you.